Kaiju FM. Come find your niche. Hey folks, and welcome to this week's episode of The Prestige, a podcast for film lovers by film lovers. Each week, we pick a film, we discuss that film and some of the ideas and themes it put up. And as always, we end the show with our recommendations, further watching, inspired by the movie of the week. But we always start the show with what else we've been watching, other things we've been watching, reading, enjoying, all of that thing, things we fitted in around our uh, our new dad status that uh, keeps us... Up all hours and busy most of the time. So Sam, have you fitted anything in since our last recording session? Yes. Um, I don't feel we talk about books enough on the show. Um, so I just want to talk about a couple of books. Um, these are on, on my mind because I took them to a charity shop this week. And I took them to a charity shop for very different reasons. The first one, which is very good... I only took to the charity shop because it's the sort of book that you just read once and enjoy and then that's enough. You don't need to sort of go back to it and dip into it again and again. And it's Richard Iwari's The Grip of Film, which is um, written in the guise of a certain character that Richard Iwari's created. And it was sort of, an enjoyable read and didn't take too long to get through and if you're interested in if, if you if you like film you don't take it too seriously and you know he, he writes particularly well I would recommend that it's an enjoyable afternoon reading that the other one that I do at the charity shop is just terrible and I took it because I'm a bit ashamed of myself for having read it um, and I wanted it out of the house as quickly as possible. Um, and th- this is because it, it, it's the it's a quite recent James Patterson book, and I always thought of James Patterson as quite a good writer, um, and he didn't necessarily write sort of highfalutin, prize-worthy fiction, but it was always sort of taking the boxes and um, certain, maybe by rote detective stories, but still quite good crime writing. And I was given an example to students of something they could go away and, and just dip into because crime writing is something that we talk about. Um, and this is largely based on the fact that uh, he was a favourite author of a, a friend of ours at school, Don. Um, and I read a bit of his um, about 20 years ago and quite enjoyed it and thought, well, I'll go back to it and see what this is like. And it's just terrible. <laughs> I don't know whether he's just taken his foot off the gas in the past 20 years and decided, you know what, I'm a billionaire, I don't care anymore. Is it that, or is it just that I've become slightly more discerning and I haven't got a 15-year-old's reading pace anymore? Um, it's just terrible. Don't go anywhere near it. 
I would recommend the Richard O'Reilly book, but I would definitely not recommend Jane Patterson in any way. Fair enough. Weirdly, this links to what I'm going to talk about. Ah. You mentioned it, because I remember the period in our lives in which we all sat down and read the books, because they went around the group and we all read them. Mm. This week, my wife and I have watched the original American Pie movie from 1999. So I would have been 17, 16, 17. Sam would have been 15, 16. Uh, so right in that, that 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 sweet spot of us reading these books, we were also watching the American Pie film. So yeah, we went back to it. Sarah and I are trying to watch some more of the movies in our collection, some things we own on DVD, rather than always going to Netflix or whatever. And this one came up. And I went into it a little bit trepidatious, a little bit... This was, you know, it's a teen sex comedy from the mid-90s, late 90s. You're going into it a little bit like, oh, is this going to be terrible? Is this going to be terrible? Is this going to be one of those things where in modern woke times that we're going to think yeah, actually you know what this is absolutely abysmal and no one here is a good person but I'm happy to report that's just not the case oh. there are some questionable bits there's a bit in which the main character streams a woman changing his room on the internet and that's a terrible bit but apart from that like it's genuinely quite a sex positive and b feminist in its outlet it's mostly about four idiot men learning that it isn't all about just getting laid and coming up against these empowered sexually active women and dealing with that it's it's weirdly like it's not what i thought i'd be saying about watching this film but it's it's such a weird kind of film that it is everything you think it is it is in many ways crude it is a sex comedy but most of that is kept to the character of stifler who is reviled in the movie as an idiot so it's like i've got a real urge now to go re-watch more films from this era to sort of see if i missed it the first time I will say, I think the American Pie films lose a lot of that over the series. There are there are four films in the main canon, and then like four spin-offs, and they lose a lot of that along the way. But it was really kind of like, oh, oh more going on here than I thought there was, and it's not as bad as it was going to be. Too. I had a, had a whale of a time. Oh, good. Yeah, American Pie from 1999. Well, not everything from 20 years ago is utterly terrible. It's good to know. So, this week's film is the next in our subgenre of vampire films. It's the 1963 film, which was released in Italian, but then the English-slash-American name of the film is Black Sabbath. Do you believe in ghosts? This is the night when fear and horror walk hand in hand. This is Black Sabbath. Starring the incomparable Boris Karloff, the personable Mark Damon, and lush and lovely women. Even though one is from the netherworld, a vampire, a burdelac. Black Sabbath, as ancient as superstition, as modern as the telephone. Black Sabbath, which, as I said, was an Italian film, firstly, Trivolti della Pora, The Free Face of Fear, is a 1963 film directed by Mario Bava, um, sort of horror anthology film, and it comes at the end of a period of what's known as sword and sandal epics, which I would say a bit more about at the end of the podcast um, and it's it marks a, a move towards a different sort of film and 
this different sort of film involved um, a number of things, including stitching various stories together. So this is three stories stuck together in a film. Um, rather confusingly, they are in a different order, depending on whether you watch the Italian print or the American. I believe Rob is a sucker for punishment and has watched both. I did. Last night I watched both versions. Right. It was released in in the Italian version in one order, first of all, and then post-production for the American version they did. They made a number of changes to plot and removed more salacious elements, toned down the violence, and also reordered the three main stories. Um, so the version we're going to talk about is the ultimate version at the end of that process, the American print version, which has three stories, uh, the drop of water, the telephone, and the word lack, the last of those based on um, a short story about a vampire-like creature is the continuation of our vampire stories, the first two more horror-focused in tone. And the star of that third story is Boris Karloff, who also introduces the whole film, and there are performances from a number of lesser-known actors on the way, um, and it's sort of sewn together by this returning sort of quasi-benevolent figure of Karloff, who speaks directly to camera between the films. So, Rob, what did you think? I'm going to talk a bit in, in abstract, first of all, and then dive into some details here, because obviously I have seen two versions of this, and in many ways they are very different films compared to the uh, the one version that we're going to talk more about, because that's the one that's more readily available, certainly. In the big picture, the Italian version is better. The things that were cut and changed to make it more palatable for the American audiences are some of the things that you lose and make it great. It certainly looks better. And there are various things you can find online traders and stuff that kind of show you the, the strength of the colour and the look, especially in the remastered version of the Italian version. It's a far better looking film. It's a far more beautiful looking film. And it's a far more interesting looking film. Um, also, I mean, already as Sam said, you do lose some of the violence, some of the more um, salacious elements. There was a, a lesbian undercurrent to one of the stories, the telephone story, which was replaced with a more kind of supernatural element, which wasn't present in the original. The original version, the Italian version, is certainly more salacious, more kind of jalous, more kind of you know pulp drive-in movie-esque and I certainly enjoyed that more. But the American version certainly wasn't bad. I think the I suppose the the curse and the blessing of this kind of anthology film is that you can have a bad one in there and it still be good, if that makes sense. So you can kind of mix and match. I think that the one thing, and we'll touch more on this as we talk about it, that the, the thing that really, really struck me a lot of it off was the soundscape, especially in the um, the, the first tale of the um, the dripping water the sound that rolls around that scene in which she's dripping water and, and like she's alone in her flat. A lot of these, I mean, especially the first sort of the uh, the two shorter pieces, they are kind of a one-handed, maybe two-handed piece. And so you really have to build that tension through sound effects. I thought that was that was so well done. Aside from the, the sort of the, the gory elements that I love of movies, it was such a great kind of master, that first masterclass of sound design that first one was. 
I really liked it. And overall, I liked, I liked all three bits. Um, we'll talk more about the vampire one sort of when we get into the into the guts of that. But overall, I liked it. What about you, Sam? Yeah, I, I also... I wouldn't say really liked it. I thought it was sort of curious, I guess. It was... Mm-hmm. Parts of it were brilliant, parts of it less so. Um, and I sort of agreed with the criti- one of the critical receptions I saw, which was the job of water and the telephone are brilliant in their own way, and the word lack kind of lets it down a bit. I, I did enjoy this anthology style of bringing these three stories together and catering to the fact that I suppose I enjoyed having a story to focus on for half an hour at a time. And yet I kind of didn't like the hammier aspects of that last story. So yeah, I would say overall, yes, I enjoyed it. Particularly in the American version, it's the first two stories. I thought it was was weaker in the Verdelac. Um, which is a shame because obviously Karloff is the name mm. and given he's front and centre with the narration, you know that his story is the one that they they hang everything on. And yeah, I, I felt that that was significantly weak. I was I mean, this, this is where we get into version wars. And I'm not going to get into that because we are going to talk about the American version better. But the world like is one where the... The Italian version is a lot stronger. I still think it is the weaker of the three films, even in the Italian version. It's still the weakest of the three, of the three sections. Mm. Um, but the visuals make it the kind of the gothic horror that they bring in with the visuals in the in the original version, which is still present a little bit in the American one. But the kind of the sense of it and the sense of the like the the, the, well, the child vampire and all things like that they they kind of bring in really ramp that up, and it looks so much more opulent and richer um, and you get this kind of scape of a world and the skies are bright blue and the vicious reds and all of that is pumped up and it really works stronger but I will agree I think it is it's a bit I suppose because it's Karloff's piece itself it's longer than the other two and in many ways it kind of strayed into indulgence a little bit yeah. like the, the, especially the um the um water drips it's just a tight little film yeah it's such a tight film it's so great in that you don't have to see the scene i mean guys spoilers throughout obviously you don't have to see the scene in which the neighbor takes the ring all you get is the shot of it coming up and her look and it, it's just so so tightly wound that that that, that whole thing is it's brilliant and the same a bit for the telephone. The telephone is a bit baggier, certainly, and it certainly has a much more going sort of build up to it. But yeah, the Verlag just felt too like it could do with a, another hard pass mm. in terms of editing, um, and to strip out like they kind of just like they go and they come back and this person turns up and I'm not sure why all these characters are here, you know that like, this is a that you could have jumped in halfway through and just had them on the run. Mm. It just felt too indulgent to me. Yeah, and one of the ways in which those first two were so good is because they felt like single character pieces. For for all the mm. there were a couple of other characters. The drip water is, is basically about the nurse. The telephone is about Rosie, and when you got the 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 word like like well, who is this focused on? Are we meant to side mm. with the count or? Do we side with 
the daughter or in some weird way are we supposed to side with the world like himself? I, was, I wasn't sure about that. It felt like it was a whole movie that they crammed down into half an hour. Mm. Um, and it just didn't serve either of those things very well. Yeah. You know, that there is a whole movie in here about a stranger coming to town and finding this family. I mean, we almost have it kind of like last week's movie looking at um, The Curse of the Undead. You know, it's about this, you get to know the people in the town and the relationships and people turn and all that kind of And that's there. It all felt rushed to try and get all these plot elements, all this kind of plot development and all these scenes and these shows wanted all into the running time. Yeah. I do want to talk about the, the ways in which this film really works, though, rather than hitting mm-hmm. hitting on the, the that too much. And, I mean, there's some, something you've touched on already is the, the sound design, Jeffrey Water. I thought the, the cinematography was really innovative and exciting as well. When, when she gets dressed and has to leave the house to to make the house call, the the camera sort of pans away while she gets dressed. And you feel kind of a bit like a voyeur. Like, Mm. it's kind of like you would if you were a person in the house with her. You wouldn't follow her into the bedroom to see her get dressed. You kind of move away. There was something really... You could tell that Murray Bava knew what he was doing with that movement mm, of the camera. Very much so. It kind of it's instantly sets up the scene, and probably the long chunk of the, um, the film, the story, takes place in that one flat. That really nice opening shot establishes the space that mm. then comes back to towards the end, and I think it nicely set up the difference between that and like the the medium's house. Because that was all locked off cameras and like long shot down corridors and rooms into rooms into rooms, mm. and it meant that there was a visual difference of it, apart from the sort of the textual and the dressing side of it. Visually, the two places look different. And also, I suppose it's part of that sort of locked off camera element of the medium's house that there's something much more intimate about the nurse's apartment. And you saw that when when she has, you don't really know what it is, like an episode of fainting fits, or epileptic fit, we don't know what it is, but mm. the the camera spins around and it's kind of like we're in her head with her. There's something so much more intimate about that. I and mean, It just felt cold and unloved, the medium's house. Mm. I think that, that, that it felt just kind of, it really reminded me of scenes from sort of Blade Runner, Esque in that kind of like faded glamour, like this once was an opulent rich place that's just destroyed and destroyed and destroyed over time. Obviously, with all the cats uh, running around, which threw me off entirely. I kept thinking my cat at the window. That, I mean, that's a great example of a sound design. I think really is like you saw the cat on screen and it just came on the soundtrack, um, and it really just sold the whole just like. It's kind of overrun. It's kind of run down. Um, it's a very kind of, you know, distressed place. And I think the character design of the dead medium was also brilliant. Like she was like that, that fine line between like terrifyingly shocking, but also believable could ever. And we've talked about the the story, the, the third story, the word like not being particularly strong. But there was something that and and this is actually what I wanted wanted more from. It's like you're saying this there could be a whole movie in this, and that's 
That's absolutely right. I wanted much more from this. Mm. When um, the Count first meets the daughter, he speaks to her. He, he is overcome with love for her instantly. Mm. And it's kind of like he is a vampire himself. Like they, they make a point of, and, and I know he's not, well, not till the end, but he, he, he is definitely not. But they make a point of saying, well, let's feast on the blood of those they love. Mm. And that was just echoing in my head. The, I mean, all the way through, he's he's professing his, his love for her. And it just felt like he was afflicted in the same way. And then in the scenes when he's trying to persuade her to leave the house, he's trying to control her. Yeah. He is like and he's like a vampire himself. He's he's trying to force her to be something. And I wonder whether again maybe it's not a particularly um nineteen sixties thing to think, but I, I wonder whether this film was a sort of early film about men trying to control women because that's what we have here we have love well professions of love or lust or whatever they are leading to a man forcing himself on a woman that's that's what i was saying about not knowing who to side with Mm. but i felt like at the beginning we were siding with vladimir but then when he acted like that i was like well don't get bitten then. I don't care. You're horrible. Well, I think, I think the thing is that you've hit something there, which kind of leads me into my next thing I want to discuss, is this, obviously, we are looking at the vampire genre, and obviously this sits in that somewhere. But I think you're right. I think it is about kind of control and about, obviously, men controlling women. Because historically, I mean, even through the movies we've watched, it's overwhelming about male vampires trying to control female humans. Mm. It's about them trying to own them or believing they belong to them or trying to control who they're with. We've seen it in Nosferatu, we've seen it in Dracula, we've seen it in almost all the ones we've seen so far. About generally about an older male vampire trying to control and have control over a, a, a younger female human. So I think there is, there is something that... Uh, sort of we see through the genre but i thought i'd be interested to talk about how we see this this film sitting in, in terms of the larger sort of canon of vampire films because it felt weirdly like it was a chosen throwback like it, it, it was intended you mentioned at the start of the, the sort of sword and sandal films of the era this the word like felt like you're trying to evoke memories of previous movies mm, yeah if that makes sense yeah it felt like the first two were really quite progressive and mm. well particularly when you know about the kind of the, the the Italian original of of the telephone and sort of things about female emancipation and sexuality and and in in the drop of water there's like you so said there, there's a it's really quite um, quite a modern aesthetic to it, the way that the sound works and the cinematography and the cameras. And it felt like this third film was kind of a throwback. Like you said, it's like the, those first two were moving towards the 70s even. And mm. the word lack was very definitely rooted in the late 19th century or the early 20th century with Nosferatu or it, it, it felt very much like 
another Dracula story that we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I agree. It, it kind of felt, but it felt, I mean, this is maybe where not being Italians from the 70s, um, 60s, we, we aren't getting the reference they're going for here. It is obviously set in its historical time. But it felt like you were trying to evoke that kind of Wuthering Heights-esque classic gothic mm. romance horror. Yeah. And obviously the, the link of you know, vampires historically have been quite gothic in their styles. It did feel, compared to the other two, which are much more modern stories about, not modern problems, but um, set in modern day, and they have the, all the uh, accoutrements sort of and the stylings of the modern films. This felt like a weird throwback, and that's where I suppose where I come back to it maybe being a bit more of a passion project mm. for Boris. Um, because it felt a bit like he wanted to do this. Um, and that's why it's longer, it's baggier, and why it's what it, why it's what it is, rather than everything else in the movie seems to be much, much more kind of focused and tight. So, Rob, do you have recommendations for us based on Lights Out? I do, I do. I've got two recommendations. Um, so we've touched on his name a couple of times in this, which is the director of Mario Brava. I say, I think he's a very good director. I think if you see his uh, the original version of this, um, it is very, very good and very, very striking. But I do want to talk about a film that came out a couple of years later, three years later to be precise. So this is a, a long story, guys, by me. Um, there is a movie that came out in 65 um, called Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine. Uh, starring Vincent Price, it is kind of a spoof of uh, James Bond movies um, and kind of like beach party movies of the era. It's silly, it's stupid. It's about Dr. Goldfoot, who is a villain, churning out bikini-clad models to infiltrate around the world. Um, it is it is knowingly over the top. It is full of in-jokes. It's very camp, and it's a great film. And it was released in 65, and it was a... Great success. Great success. Um, a year later, they tapped Mario Brava to make the sequel called Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs. And it was a crushing failure. The sequel just didn't nail it in the way the first one did. I really like the sequel. I think the sequel is fun. It's equally camp. It doesn't reach the insane quite insane heights of the first one the uh sort of the italian version the kind of italian that comes into it is a bit more over top it's much more euro spy rather than sort of james bondy spoofy but it is it's very fun it still serves Vincent price and it features dr goldford and all, all the kind of the madness of the first one so it, it did fail on its release but i do think it's worth checking out it's got like i'm looking at it on imdb it's got like four out of ten it's it doesn't it's not well liked but for that era it's the cult films i love it so that was my first one which is director my second one's more thematic in many ways and we didn't talk much about the kind of the, the triptych nature of the movie but the idea of triptych films um anthology films is a well-worn tread particularly within horror films to have three movies in a the movie. There are recent examples, things like VHS was a um, a very good one. And they often come with, I can see that one, finding VHS tapes. So I want to talk about one from back in 2000 um, called Terror, or House on Terror Tract, um, or just Terror Tract, depending on where you get it. It's about a real estate um, agent 
telling the potential new owners three stories of previous things that have happened in the house they're looking at. So that's kind of the, the loose framework that it, that it hangs on. It stars John Ritter, who many of you will know um, from his comedy work. He's probably more known for his work doing that. Um, he appeared in a lot of things. The big one was Eight Simple Rules, was a sort of a sitcom from the early 2000s. But before that, he appeared in this. It's not as well known. It's very scary in places, but also kind of fun in the way that horror comedy things can be. So that's mine. What about you, Sam? Right. I have a couple of recommendations as well. The first one is particularly root one it's just another Boris Karloff film we talked a lot about this basically being a Karloff vehicle and going back nearly 30 years to 1935's The Bride of Frankenstein is perhaps the quintessential Boris Karloff film it's one that everyone knows him for so that's my first recommendation my second um is a link that, I mean, Rob's known me for over 25 years, and I suspect he doesn't know this. Um, but my personal grandfather was a senior cameraman on the, um, particularly the sword and sandal pictures in Italy in the very early 1960s. I didn't know that. You didn't know that? I didn't know that, no. Oh, okay. And he um, sadly died very young, and he died before they stopped making the Sword and Sandler pictures. So that was sort of the height of his career, was the early 60s. Um, so I wanted to talk about another film from this era. It's another Mario Bava film. It may not have been a film that my granddad worked on, because as I said, he was both songs and and the pictures and this is a film that moves into a genre that Rob mentioned right at the start it's the giallo horror that the songs and the pictures got sort of replaced with um, certainly in terms of public interest in the mid-1960s and it's another 1963 film it's La Ragazza Case Peva Troppo The Girl Who Knew Too Much and it's another Mario Baba film. It's generally thought of as the first yellow horror film. So there we go, that's my recommendation. Also, I noticed it's got John Saxon in it, which is another lead. That, that threw me back to uh, Enter the Dragon. I believe I have, I have that on Blu-ray. Um, I believe it was released by Arrow Video a couple of years ago. Oh. And it's a very good film. I, I will just quickly Google that but uh, while we're chatting. Yeah, oh. Arrow put it out a couple of years ago, and I have a, when I used to review movies, I have a copy of that, and it's it is it is very good. So, guys, we are moving from the sixties into the seventies, jumping ten years in the future to pick up with the nineteen seventy three film, the experimental horror movie Ganja and Hess. Now, this is a film where I know nothing about it at all, so I am very looking forward to uh, seeing it. All I know is it was remade by Spike Lee back in 2014 um, and those who've been following us for now we did Spike Lee a couple of years ago as a whole season and uh, I very much liked his work so I'm looking forward to this we are looking at his version of looking at the original version from 73 till then guys you can find both of us online at Pesty Podcast you can find just me at life underscore academic and you can find me at Kaiju FM 
And we're back here in two weeks' time with Ganja and Hess. Thank you.